Hello and welcome to Biosounds, where PhD students give you a taste of science happening at the University of Geneva. I'm Zoe, here to present our first ever episode of the podcast. Firstly, I have the pleasure to introduce Olympia Bonpadre. She's a PhD student in the lab of Guillaume Andre in the Department of Genetic Medicine and Development. Thanks for joining us, Olympia, and we'd love to hear about your PhD project. Thank you so much for having me. So, as you mentioned, I work in the medical genetics and developmental field. And I would like actually to start with how development works. So, it's a complex process where we have an organism that needs to grow, but also needs to change to become specialized. So, for this, there are many genes that are involved in the process. And there is one fundamental question that is in the field of uh, developmental genetics, and it's how do we establish gene expression in a developing organ, for example. So Mm -hmm. we know so far that genes communicate with other pieces of DNA. These pieces of DNA direct the expression of the gene during development, and we call these pieces of DNA enhancers. So, Okay, so these parts of DNA are controlling genes and when the genes are expressed or how much the genes are expressed. Exactly. So it's like a traffic director that tells a gene you can be expressed and you can go this way or this way and you can be expressed only in this specific way. Okay. So what we don't know yet is how do we achieve the communication between our gene and our enhancer. So for this, more specifically, I worked on the gene that is called PTX1, and it's just a gene that's very important for leg development. So PTX1 itself is directed by several enhancers, and these enhancers each have an input on the pattern of expression and the time of expression of the gene. And the DNA around the gene folds in a specific way to allow the PTX1 gene to contact the enhancers in the cells where this contact is needed. Um, oh, so the enhancer and the gene literally touch, like, they come touch into physical other. contact? Yes, okay. exactly. So they come into physical contact and when they do, the gene gets the information it needs. So it's important mm-hmm. that this contact happens in the specific cells where we need the information. So little is actually known about the roles of the enhancers themselves during development. So taken away from their role of directing gene expression, what are enhancers and how do they actually work? And what I was mentioning before is also the way that the DNA folds itself. So this is actually quite a new avenue of research in which it was thought that the way that all the DNA in a cell is distributed and folded randomly, this is actually not true. And it's a very important part of how gene expression is achieved because you can think of it that the way that it's folded, the DNA is folded, can help the contact between promoters and enhancers or can prevent this Mm -hmm. contact. So what my project tries to answer is two main questions. And one of them is how do enhancers contribute to gene expression in different cell types? And how do genes that are regulated by multiple enhancers respond to the loss of one of them? 
Okay, so sometimes genes are actually regulated by more than one enhancer. Exactly. So as I was saying, PTX1 is one of these genes and it has several enhancers that help to direct the expression. So for this, we study cells from mouse embryo legs and we inserted a green fluorescent marker, so a color, next to our PTX1 gene so that we can track by looking at the color the cells that express PTX1. And we can also then separate cells based on the presence or absence of color and this means that it's also based on the expression or non-expression of the PTX1 gene. So any cells that express PTX1 will also express this green, will be green. Exactly. Exactly. And all the cells that don't express green, they don't express PTX1. So when we work with these different cell populations, then we can study the way that the DNA folds in them. And we look for marks on the DNA that tells us if the gene or the enhancers are active or inactive. And we can also then look at the 3D contact between the regions at the gene. And we can see then how this gene can achieve precise spatial or temporal expression. So we do the study in a normal genetic background, so it means that our mice will develop healthy and normal looking. Mm -hmm. And we also study this in a genotype, so in a background where we delete one of these enhancers. And we can see then what are the differences in the development between a normal leg and a deformed leg. And we can then understand in this way what the enhancers contribute to normal development. Wow, that's really cool. Well, thank you, Olympia, for telling us about your research. I find it really amazing that we can understand more and more about how genes are regulated when we're developing as embryos. Now stay tuned with us on Biosounds as we go to our correspondent, Rue, who will be talking to Professor Hartley about his current research. Rue, over to you. Today we welcome Professor Oliver Hartley from the Department of Pathology and Immunology at the Faculty of Medicine. The lab of Professor Hartley focuses on the prevention of infectious diseases by the engineering of proteins and peptides to identify new macromolecules with potential use as medicines. Their main work revolves around the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, which is a virus that damages the cells of the immune system and weakens the ability to fight everyday infections and disease. There is currently no cure for HIV, but there are very effective drug treatments that enable most people with the virus to live long and healthy life. So let's see what Professor Hartley can tell us about HIV and about the work they are doing in the lab to prevent this infection. Hello, Professor Hartley, and welcome to Biosounds. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time to have a little chat with you and discuss the interesting things you're undergoing in the lab. So now I will start by asking you, actually, a very fundamental question. We heard a lot of crazy theories about the origin of HIV. I'm not going into detail with that, but <laughs> I think you, you've also heard about them. But I mean, from a professional uh, side, can you explain to us how this virus emerged? Yes, I can. Um, so the, the, the scientific community, the consensus is that HIV 
is, is a virus that crosses the species barrier from chimpanzees to humans. So human S, uh, chimpanzee SIV, that's mm -hmm. simian immunodeficiency virus, crossed over from the chimpanzee population uh, into humans in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, and do we know when? Um, interestingly enough, we the current ideas would suggest that the, the HIV crossed the species barrier repeatedly during the 20th century, since right. the beginning of the 20th century, but it was um, it didn't become a um, pandemic straight away because what it was needing was, you know, the, the way that the 20th century changed urbanization, mass movement of people, and this is what enabled uh, HIV to spread worldwide and not be restricted just to the communities around where men and, and mm -hmm. chimpanzees come into contact. All right. So that will take us uh, to another, uh, at least, uh, area from all these crazy theories. And now at least we, we understand how and more or less when this virus emerged. So that will take me actually to the second question. And it's, we know that the virus was detected at least 60 years ago in humans. How can you explain that we could not find a cure or an effective vaccine against it until now with all the technologies we have? I mean, 60 years is, is a quite long time. Yeah. And so, well, about the 60 years, in fact, let's go back. I think probably uh, over 100 years, uh, HIV has been in existence probably, but we didn't know about mm -hmm. it. Okay. And the first uh, unambiguous case of HIV infection uh, it, is in a sample taken uh, from that region in Africa around 60 years ago but of course at the time nobody was talking about hiv or, or aids and, and the the aids um the aids problem emerged at the beginning of the 1980s and the virus wasn't discovered by scientists until uh, until the early 80s and so really i think we could we should start the clock from then and uh, not from yeah. 60 years ago it's still a long time uh it's a long time and it's been the focus of a huge amounts of, of funding and efforts and time on behalf of some of the some of the best scientists in the world and despite this um no, no cure uh and and no uh, effective vaccine as as you've said um yeah. perhaps i'd like to respond to your question a little bit obliquely by saying yeah okay no, no cure but do we need a cure since the treatment is so good um and that's true um, yeah. when people when people have access to treatment um they can essentially live normal life and so um Again, it's a burden uh, to have to take medicine all your life and have a chronic disease like HIV. And we may discover that it's associated with some health complications later in life. Yep. But I, I think that actually HIV has been an enormous success story for the scientific community because we've developed such successful and safe therapies for it. Okay, and so as, as you said, the treatment has to be accessible to everyone. Is it to everyone? No, it's not. Um, and, and so uh, there's still a significant number of people in the world that don't have access uh, to uh, effective HIV treatment or only have partial access to it. And partial is not good enough. You need full treatment with, with good uh, medical support as well, monitoring in order to, to effectively control HIV. So yeah. the situation is not completely under control. And um, one of the, um, the ways in which the solution could be solved that people talk about is to get effective treatment to uh, a very large number of people. So simply go with the solution you have, but, but make it accessible to more people. Yes. Uh, so that's one solution. Another solution is to stop new people getting infected, uh, either by 
by vaccine or by prevention technology of, of another kind. And so um, we, we've, you've, your question has many facets to it. So um, maybe if we talk uh, about uh, vaccine, first of all, uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk about vaccines against another virus that everyone's excited about yeah. at the moment. And a lot of optimism that, you know, very soon after the discovery of the virus, an effective vaccine can be developed. Uh, but not all viruses are, are, are that simple to combat using vaccines. And HIV is a, is a very good example of this. Exactly, because maybe for our listeners, it's a bit confusing because we're talking about HIV, which is a virus, as you said, was discovered at least 100 years ago. We don't have a vaccine yet, whereas for the COVID-19 it was discovered not even one year ago, but still they are talking about a vaccine for next year. So yeah. this is a bit confusing. So I think our listeners need to understand like, yes, viruses are not the same. And uh, some of them are more complicated than others. Well, I want but, to be fair to, to the scientific community selling HIV. Since the 80s, that's what, uh, that's 30 yeah. years, not 100 years. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah, of course. So they, that's the yeah. time they've had. But, but so, it's so, still, it's 30 years versus one year, so. Yeah, that's right. So, so what's, yeah. what's happened? Well, first of all, um, without without turning this into, um, you know, a, a big um, immunology lecture, which I don't yeah. think your, your listeners want to yeah, hear about, um, the, 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 the kind of viruses against which we can easily make vaccines are the viruses that, that infect very quickly and give us very powerful symptoms very quickly. And... Um, against which the immune system will either win the battle very fast against the virus or the virus will very quickly win the battle against the immune system. Yes. And so this type of, of battle is, is used by, by some viruses as a strategy, but, but HIV is exactly at the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, HIV is called, is, comes from a family of viruses called lentiviruses and lenti meaning slow. And so, so the, okay. the strategy of HIV is to get into the body and then to uh, very gently and slowly and um, under camouflage really break down the immune system gradually. And so in, in individuals which are, who are not treated with uh, for HIV, then uh, the symptoms don't emerge straight away and they don't uh, become pathological for many years after the first yeah. infection. Okay, so that's explained a little bit, the, the difference at least between the, the, the two viruses. The and if I could say one more thing for, for the listeners, yes. you know, this is something which they may have heard about with, with respect to vaccines against, uh, against coronavirus, is, you know, what, 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 do we people who have been infected, do they develop protective immunity after infection? Do they, do they, are they protected after infection? And the answer with HIV is no, they never manage to develop their own immune response against the virus. Yes. So it's very hard for us to imagine um, how we can uh, get people to generate an effective immune response against the virus with a vaccine when they don't manage to do so against the virus itself. Yeah, that's that's a good point, exactly. And and th that will take me actually to my question, which is how far are we from a cure for the HIV? And is it something that actually scientists are working on or it's just a lost cause? I mean, okay. like you said, because previously you talked about like why do we need a cure if we have treatment and what i'm thinking now is like i mean that's it's different a cure that can actually solve the problem whereas the treatment as it's not accessible to everyone it's still a problem that's very good now i don't want to behave like a politician but i'm actually gonna um, just finish off saying something about vaccine which is important mm -hmm. because uh, is there hope for an hiv vaccine uh, the answer is uh, yes there is and this is based on observation of the very rare people that have been exposed to the virus and, and not been 
infected because they've developed a, a good immune response because they can generate antibodies which uh, are capable of controlling the virus after infection and, and stopping it from, from, uh, from spreading through the body. And so the study, the detailed study of the antibodies made by these people have uh, led the research community closer to developing uh, an, an effective vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, with respect to the cure, uh, yes, um, it is a kind of, uh, of objective for, um, for the research community, uh, for the reasons you, you, you stated. Yeah. Um, and so what, do we, what can we do? Has there already been a cure? Yes, there has actually been uh, at least two um, medical interventions which have led to a cure. Mm -hmm. One of them is, is very well known, um, the case of the Berlin patient. Um, yeah. and, and there was another patient that had a similar kind of medical story who was cured from HIV as well. Yes. Um, but that was a rather complex intervention, uh, which wouldn't be um, really conceivable to do for large numbers of people being infected by the virus. So I, I mentioned in my answer to your question before that HIV likes to, uh, when it infects people, it likes to go and hide someplace in the body uh, away from the immune system and then break out slowly when it can. And these are called uh, reservoirs. And so the, the latent HIV reservoirs are the current focus of uh, ideas to, to cure HIV. So the idea is somehow to entice or force HIV to come out of its hiding place uh, so that it can be shot down by, by other um, potent anti-HIV medication. So th this is the focus of, H of HIV cure research. Okay, and and that that actually leads to what uh, what you are doing in the lab because I know that you focus uh, more about the prevention of the transmission. And can you tell us a little bit like what are the strategies that you are using to achieve that in your yes, lab? Sure. So so we. Um, one of the things that emerged when people were trying to understand what protects people in the rare cases when people are protected by HIV, it was noted that there were there there are a group of of humans that have been um, exposed very strongly to HIV but never got infected. And, and when you look at the um, the genetic makeup of those of those people, you discover that they are lacking a one uh, one one key gene which is essential for HIV to uh, infect and, and spread through the body. Okay. And it's a protein, a receptor called CCR5. And, and remarkably enough, it's a human protein. But if you don't have that protein, it doesn't seem to be that much of a problem for your health. So it's not really necessary for us because people who don't have it, they seem to be very healthy. But it's absolutely essential for HIV because the people who don't have this receptor can't get infected. And yeah. so... Our focus has been to try to block that receptor. So to yeah. try to induce pharmacologically the same um, effect that people who don't have the gene have in terms of resistance for HIV, to make everybody in the world the same as the people, the, the, the few people that don't have this receptor. Yeah, so so this is like the story of the key and the lock. So we have the lock and, and the, the virus has the key. So if actually we didn't have this the lock that the virus needs, it will never enter the cell. Exactly right. And so what we're trying to do with our strategy is we can't make we can't make the, the lock go away, but we can block it so yep. that the key won't fit in anymore. Exactly. And so what we do, I, I said it's a human receptor, uh, and so that means that something binds to it, and it's a human protein that binds to that receptor. Mm -hmm. And that human protein that binds to the receptor has a kind of modest ability to block HIV. Uh, but mm -hmm. what we do is we modified that protein uh, in a stepwise manner over many years 
uh, and we found a way to make it um, literally thousands of times more potent than the original protein at blocking okay. the lock that's used by HIV. That's, and so we that's thought, interesting, yeah. Um, you know, this could be actually used to, um, to block uh, the replication of HIV in somebody who's already infected as a therapeutic. That's mm -hmm. true. Uh, but we thought that uh, really uh, around the world, the biggest problem is um, in the absence of an effective vaccine to try to stop infections from happening. So yes. our focus was instead to, fo to, to make use of this protein as a way to prevent HIV transmission between people. Yeah. And the way, as I'm sure your listeners know, HIV is trans transmitted most often is through sexual intercourse, mm -hmm. unprotected sexual intercourse. And so the idea uh, with, with our, our molecule was to make a kind of a gel that can be used uh, during sexual intercourse that would protect uh, either partner from transmission during sex. Because the virus, when it passes from one person to another, needs to use this lock called CTR5 in order to go from one person to another. And mm -hmm. if you block that lock on the cells in the body, which come into contact with the virus during sexual intercourse, you can stop the virus transmitting from one person to another. Th that's quite interesting because I think, I mean, you, you said gel. So I think that's more accessible to many people than other probably treatments. I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to give you an idea, we invented this molecule around about 2008. And uh, we're now in 2020. Um, and during most of those years, uh, the struggle was trying to solve problems. We know the molecule was very good in principle, but how are we going to make it into a product that was suitable for use in this purpose? How are we going to make it uh, uh, cheaply enough and in large enough quantities? Exactly. In beautiful grade, uh, all, all of these kind of things. And then all of the uh, hurdles that you have to go across when you have a molecule that works in the lab in order to get permission to test the molecule in people for the first time. All yeah. of that took a great deal of time and money, problem solving and thinking. Yeah. So so can these strategies like that you talked about be applied for other infections or pathologies? Um, yes. Uh, in fact, very serendipitously, and this often happens in research, uh, you, you, you study one, one kind of um, one kind of drug target because you're trying to prevent one kind of pathology. And then later on, uh, the, the target you're studying might become associated by because of new research to other pathologies. So this receptor I was talking about, CTR5, which is uh, essential for HIV, it's just emerged in the last five, five or 10 years that it's also very, very important uh, in cancer. And, and in okay. fact, uh, it, it's something which uh, tumors uh, use, they make use of the receptor in order to help them to uh, to hide away from attack from the immune system. And so um, the tumor is using uh, CCR5, our, our, our target, yeah. as a way to protect itself from, from being destroyed by the immune system. And so if you block that receptor using our drug, then the immune system has a better chance to fight back against the cancer and, and yeah, kill that's, it off. That's, that's very, very interesting. And Actually, I lately visited the lab research of, uh, I mean, the, the page, and I can see that one of your best inhibitor is heading for a clinical study. Is it, can, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is going back to the, the gel that we were talking about before. Yeah. And I said, you know, we invented it in 2008, thereabouts. 
Uh, and then uh, that was actually, I thought that was going to be the end of the story, but it was the beginning of a very, very long road. Um, and the road was to, to find out how to produce large quantities of, of the drug, how to put it into a gel uh, in such a way that it was stable, uh, and then how to make sure that the gel was going to be safe for use in, in humans. And um, where, where are you now with this study? Oh, well, I'm very glad to say that um, uh, just before uh, the, the, the general lockdown yeah. in 2020, we completed the first clinical study of this gel. That's, so, that's perfect. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks very that's, much. So, so it's been tested in what we call a phase one study. So that's yeah. not testing its, um, its uh, activity against HIV, but it's just testing whether it's safe for use in humans as a, as a gel. Uh, in humans not at risk of HIV infection. And um, the results of the trial will be published shortly, but my understanding is that the trial went very successfully and there were no problems. That is great news. Congrats again for you and for uh, the whole team that was behind this, uh, this great innovation. Uh, so we have time for uh, only one question, and I think... I want to have your, I, I think we talked a little bit about the COVID-19 in the beginning, but I want to know from a, I mean, you work on uh, infectious diseases. So I think you're probably one of the best person to tell me what are the difficulties that scientists will face to make a vaccine against COVID-19? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic that it won't be as difficult uh, a challenge as, as HIV. Uh, but I'm afraid I, I don't think it's going to be quite as simple uh, as some people, some people, um, politicians notably, are, are telling us it's going to be. I, I think that um, it would be a completely unprecedented for, for a highly safe and effective vaccine to be ready just a few months after the identification of the pathogen. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very impressive the way the world's mobilized against it and is making use of all the knowledge. Uh, but I think this is going to take uh, quite some time. Um, for, for, for numerous reasons, and um, you know, some of the issues are whether the vaccine, which kind of immunity, which kind of immune system response really protects us from from the from the virus infection, and secondly, which kind of vaccine is going to uh, elicit that immunity in a safe and effective way. Yeah. Okay. So uh, unfortunately, we arrived at the end of uh, our discussion. Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Professor Hartley, for uh, this uh, quite informative and insightful discussion. And uh, I wish you all the best of luck with your uh, gel <laughs> and also uh, all the project that you have in the lab now and uh, stay safe. Okay, well, thank you very much and my greetings to all of your listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've reached the end of our episode. Thank you for listening to Biosounds, the first podcast hosted by PhD students at the University of Geneva. Stay tuned for the next episode where we hear about a cell receptor and also about AI and neuroscience. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Biosounds with the handle at BioUniJ. See you next time.